Hey, Tam. Hey, Scott. So I cover Congress. You cover the White House. But before we both did that, we were both member station reporters. Where we covered politics. I started at KQED. I was at WOSU in Ohio, KPCC. And I also worked at KQED. And before that, I was at WITF in Pennsylvania, both places I was covering the State House. Okay, so all year we've talked a lot on the podcast about state politics. And sometimes we would bring on reporters from local stations onto the podcast. But even when we didn't, the very first thing that we at NPR do every time there's something interesting going on the local level is check out what the local member station is reporting on it. And and because of the way that the whole public radio network is set up, NPR is in communities across the country at the local level, in the city hall, in the state capitol. Which is pretty cool if you think about it. It So all of that is to say that if you were to go out and support your local public radio station, which we really want you to do, then you're also, by extension, supporting the NPR Politics Podcast and everything that we do. But even aside from that, it's such a great thing to support because you are supporting fact-based public service journalism that keeps you informed about the community that you live in. And you can do that, support the podcast, and support your local station all in one place, and that is donate.npr.org politics. Donate.npr. .org/politics. We can't achieve what we do. We can't achieve this mission without you. And now, here's the show. Hi, this is Pat. I'm on the campus of Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, home of the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum and the final resting place of the 41st president himself. We just received a flyover of Special Air Mission 41 on its way to deliver the president and his family to Houston. This podcast was recorded at 1.30 Eastern on Thursday, December 6th. Things may have changed by the time you listen to this episode. Here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup. World leaders are gathering at a climate conference in Poland, and the meetings come after both the United Nations and the U.S. government released some very grim reports on climate change. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Let's start with the fact that there is a climate change conference happening right now. It's the largest gathering of world leaders discussing climate change since the Paris uh, Climate Summit in 2015. And at that meeting, a pretty dire report came out showing that CO2 emissions, that greenhouse gas emissions have spiked up over the last year. Aisha? Yes. So this was a paper published by the Global Carbon Project. This is a group of 100 scientists. And basically, they look at carbon emissions. And what they found is there was an increase of 2.7%. That's what they're expecting in 2018, an increase of 2.7%. And last year, emissions rose 1.6%. So there's a concern that we're globally we're going in the wrong direction. So the the, the big goal of the Paris Climate uh, Accord was to get every country to start lowering its carbon emissions. Uh, the opposite seems to be happening uh, within the last year. We need to start lowering emissions because things seem to be getting worse when it comes to climate change. And another stark report that really opened a lot of people's eyes was something that actually came from the Trump administration. Yeah, it was a little bit surprising. And the source, uh, this was less than two weeks ago, the Trump administration put out their congressionally mandated report on the consequences of climate change. 
and they were pretty dire. They said, look, we're already seeing the consequences of a changing climate, and we're going to be seeing more, more wildfires, more droughts, more uh, intense hurricanes, more damage to our infrastructure, more spread of insects that carry diseases, all kinds of nasty consequences. And the one that captured the headline for a lot of folks was by the end of the century, you're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars in annual economic costs. So that actually was what was most stunning about the president's reaction to it, because he wound up saying at the White House to reporters that when it comes to that economic impact, he doesn't believe it. Yeah, I don't believe it. No, no, I don't believe it. When asked about climate change, uh, there was an interview with 60 Minutes. He basically said that he thinks that there may be something going on, but it might change back. I'm not denying climate change, but it could very well go back. You know, we're talking about over millions of years. They say that we had hurricanes that were far worse than what we just had with Michael. Who says that? They say. People say say that in the... Yeah, but what about the scientists who say it's worse than ever? Uh... You'd have to show me the scientists because they have a very big political agenda. In one interview with the Washington Post, he said one of the problems that a lot of people like myself, we have very high levels of intelligence, but we're not necessarily such believers talking about climate change. And it's not just saying things like that. Uh, The Trump administration is actively rolling back Obama era regulations meant to deal with climate change. Now, they've done this a lot, but there's two that are really important to flag. One is a big rule that was meant to get the big power plants away from coal and toward natural gas and renewable energy. And the second was aimed at uh, cutting down on emissions in vehicles. Now, the thing is, a lot of the big power companies want to get away from coal anyway, despite how President Trump talks about how great coal is. So there already has been a shift to natural gas, which has lower carbon emission. And because of that, over the last few years, the U.S. has ticked down in the overall carbon dioxide emissions. In a, in a way, the Trump administration has kind of been coasting on the, the initiatives that the market has put in place and that the Obama administration has put in place. And, and so U.S. carbon emissions will continue to fall for a number of years, but they're going to plateau Uh, in a number of years. And unless additional policy measures are made, the U.S. is going to fall well short of meeting its Paris climate commitments. Of course, President Trump has announced his plans to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. What's amazing to me is the divergence of all of this kind of started as we're talking about George H.W. Bush's funeral this week and his passing with his presidency, because climate really became an issue in the 1980s, where climate scientists started to talk about this. And there was a seminal testimony in 1988, NASA's climatologist James Hansen went up to Capitol Hill before a Senate panel and said, it's time to stop waffling so much and say that the evidence is pretty strong that the greenhouse effect is here. George H.W. Bush, when he was campaigning, seemed to be open to the idea that the administrations should do something about it. He said, those who think we are powerless to do anything about the greenhouse effect are forgetting about the White House effect. In other words, he could do something about this. He said in his first year, he would convene a summit. And the interesting thing is that during the Bush presidency, both parties realized that another environmental problem, acid rain, was a real problem that Mm -hmm. needed to be dealt with. So the plan that they came up with was to limit the amount of emissions that caused acid rain from power plants. And if companies had to go over those emissions, they could buy credits to do so. That is the basic 
cap-and-trade plan that the Obama administration really pushed to deal with climate change, but Republicans revolted against. But cap-and-trade began as kind of a Republican alternative to a more heavy-handed government form of regulation. The idea is the government sets the big target, the, the cap, but companies are allowed to trade their credits as they find the most efficient way to achieve that target. So it allows market forces to play a role in allocating the cost of meeting the big government target. And it was during the Obama administration that Republicans came out very strongly against cap and trade. Uh, There was a cap and trade bill that was able to pass the House, but it died in the Senate. And they and the way that uh, Republicans went about it is they called it a cap and tax. They said that if you do this, you're going to raise energy prices for people. You're going to raise gasoline prices. And and that's not right. So that was their argument. And that's kind of the same argument that Trump makes. But it wasn't always such a polarized uh, issue. You did have George H.W. Bush uh, opening the door to cap-and-trade legislation to deal with with acid rain. You did have John McCain when he ran for president in 2008 uh, campaigning on an aggressive climate action. He used to quote the British Prime Minister Tony Blair saying, if we're wrong, what's the worst that happens? We wind up with a cleaner air and a cleaner planet. That's not such a bad thing. <laughs> you had Mitt Romney, the 2012 nominee for president on the Republican ticket. When he was governor of Massachusetts, he considered signing on to a cap-and-trade climate measure uh, in the Northeast. So this has not always been a divided partisan issue, but it is becoming more divided year by year. When you look at the polling numbers, uh, Democrats and Republicans are moving in opposite directions on this issue. The question about, you know, what's it going to cost? I think all these reports that we're seeing coming out are starting to remind us that there's a cost of inaction as well. There's a cost of inadequate action. And at some point, uh, maybe that will be persuasive to people that the cost of taking action to, to, to curtail or limit climate change is is smaller than the cost of doing nothing. And it, it seems like the question is, do you want to pay now or pay later is what I, I think what, what scientists are, are basically saying, that there's going to be a cost, but it, the question is, when do you pay it? And we know how politicians usually answer that question. Well, voters too. I mean, if you look, uh, voters who say that they want to deal with climate change, they don't want to pay more for gas or energy. And, and that's the, the political tricky aspect of this. There's a lot to talk about on that front. And we will do that after we take a quick break. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/NPRPolitics. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data and comparison to public Public data records. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Support also comes from Showtime and the new Showtime documentary series, Enemies, The President, Justice, and the FBI. From Academy Award winner Alex Gibney, Enemies is a true political thriller. The series goes from Watergate, Iran-Contra, and Whitewater to the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, examining the parallels, the similarities, and the connections of today. Enemies, The President, Justice, and the FBI, streaming now, only on Showtime. A labor strike, an iron ore mine, the KKK, Martin Luther King's Birmingham campaign, What bound all those things together? You can find out this week on the Code Switch Podcast. 
All right, we are back. So it's pretty clear this is something that is already kicking into effect. It's going to affect everybody, mostly for the negative. But you look at election after election, you look at polls after poll and, and, and previous election results. And while a lot of voters do seem to care about it, it's, it's not often the top of mind issue. It's like, yeah, we should do something about that. But I'm more concerned about health care or, you know, the Iraq war, three or four other issues. And we talked before about how this is an area where the two parties are moving in opposite directions. Just as more and more Republican voters are moving towards a more climate denier position following the lead of their elected leaders, maybe more Democratic voters are becoming more alarmed about climate change following uh, the lead of some of their elected leaders as well. This is an issue where a lot of people, I think, have, have difficulty coming to some sort of assessment of the science on their own. So they tend to look for signals from their political leaders. And that's why this is such a tribal issue. Yeah, I mean, and we see that in polling, too. I mean, climate change is always near the top for uh, Democrats and almost at the bottom for Republicans. I mean, when you think about Republicans, they'll say jobs, taxes, uh, things like that are more important to them. When you look at polling specifically on climate change, uh, Pew earlier this year did something on this specific question of whether or not you think the earth is warming because of human activity or if it's a natural pattern or if there was no solid evidence of warming, which is a fairly nuanced way of talking about climate denial, right? Um, And uh, 53% said that they think that the earth is warming because of human activity but they were hot partisan divisions when it came to this. Seven to eight and ten of Democrats said that it's because of human activity. For Republicans, it was one in five, two in five thereabouts who said who said the same. And in in fact, a majority of Republicans, eight and ten thereabouts of Republicans say it's either a natural pattern or that there's no solid evidence of warming, which of course is not true. And one of the interesting wrinkles in this is the more educated voters are, the more there is a divergence between the parties. That is, more educated Republicans are more skeptical of the science surrounding climate change. Whereas with a lot of issues like immigration or same-sex marriage, you see sort of a convergence uh, as, as voters become more educated between the parties. This is one where Republicans become more skeptical, Democrats become more alarmed. One theory that social scientists have on that is that while more educated Republicans may actually know more about the science surrounding climate change, maybe more exposed to the scientific consensus that the earth is warming and that people are responsible, they're also exposed to more Republican talking points casting doubt upon that. Over the last few months, we've seen a lot of really frightening examples of the type of stuff that we're told will become more and more frequent. Massive wildfires in California, the largest in history, increased flooding in Florida, uh, powerful hurricanes doing a ton of damage in Florida and other southern states. Did we see any election results that that changed uh, the view that this is just not the top mind issue for voters? Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that uh, in this election, we've seen things like guns, health care, and climate change actually be something that moved voters to the polls in some ways. It's a little hard to suss out if that's because there's a changing electorate or if it's more likely that uh, it's a midterm election, the most energetic voters happen to be Democrats, and for those Democrats, they're more motivated by these three issues. 
what will be interesting to see going forward is will Democrats be able to take this message on climate change? It's a concern. It's serious. This is something we have to deal with. But what will the plan be that will get people motivated? Because any way you slice it, it would seem like there's going to have to be some pain if you're going to raise energy prices. Uh, so how do they deal with that? How do they overcome that? It seems almost like the health care debate with right. where they passed <laughs> they passed uh, uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of people didn't like it at first, but eventually they, they saw it as a good thing. But they had to go through a lot of political pain uh, sure. to get there. So are Democrats really willing to kind of risk going through that kind of political pain and pay a political price to do maybe what they think is the right thing on climate. Right. So the irony is that when Barack Obama came into office, health care and climate change were two of the things that were really important to Democrats even then, of course. And those were two of the top priorities of that president and of Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House, who is likely to become Speaker of the House again. She really twisted arms to get a cap and trade legislation through. And there was a lot of pain at the ballot box for Democrats the following year, driven by health care and climate. Now, has it changed enough? We're, we're going to see, but there's going to be some big consequences in 2020. So the House passed that bill. Uh, it was not able to pass the Senate, even with the massive majority that Democrats had at the time. And you had all these House Democrats being hammered by ads of you voted to raise energy costs, gas costs, things like that. Joe Manchin, a Democratic senator, shot the cap and trade bill with a gun in one of his campaign ads. Yes. I'll take on Washington and this administration to get the federal government off of our backs and out of our pockets. I sued EPA and I'll take dead aim at the cap and trade bill. He was against it. (laughs) But it's not just West Virginia, right? You look even in the last couple of weeks, like there's no place on the planet that's more aggressive about trying to deal with climate change than Europe. Right. Emmanuel Macron in France uh, passed uh, fuel increases, uh, gas taxes to deal with climate change, massive protests in the streets and violence to the point where Macron backtracked and and delayed that tax for six months. Some of the proponents of a carbon tax in this country do say you could take the revenue from a carbon tax and redistribute it in a way that would help to offset some of that economic pain for those at the bottom of the economic ladder. But you're still seeing the Democrats think about running for president get much more aggressive about this than you've seen in the past. Just on Monday, Bernie Sanders held a Facebook town hall talking about climate change. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was was part of that. And you've seen her and other incoming House Democratic freshmen really uh, push to, to, to try to make this a, a, a top issue for the Democratic majority next year. You know, the fact is, when you look at the 2020 campaign, because you're going to have so many Democrats on the stage this time, you know, we're looking at almost 40 Democrats who are considering running at this point. Um, That's going to generate some some, some, some emissions. Yeah. Campaign yeah, emissions. there's going to be some emissions. <laughs> Good joke. So the, po- <laughs> the point... <laughs> So for 2020, there are going to be potential consequences here because you're going to have so many Democrats on the stage together, maybe 20 to 40 Democrats at this point thinking about running. Uh, You know, you're going to have a lot of them angling to say what they're going to do specifically and with conviction about this issue that is very important to the Democratic base. One thing I think it's important to keep in mind, immigration does respond to policy and politics. Same-sex marriage does care what the polling... you know, whether, whether or not we have same-sex marriage in this country does depend certainly on the Supreme Court, but also on, on the politics. The climate is going to do what the climate's going to do regardless of what Gallup says. 
whether whether right. Republicans believe this is an issue or not, the Earth is warming. The scientists are clear on this. That's a reality that the planet's going to have to confront. And with that real talk, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back with Can't Let It Go. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Google Home Hub. You know how your phone has 20 different apps to control your lights and everything in between? That's why there's Google Home Hub, which shows you your home at a glance, like the kitchen lights or that sound you just heard in the living room. Just one swipe on the screen and you can control your smart devices from one place. That's help at a glance with Google Home Hub. It's a display with the Google Assistant built in. Available now at the Google Store and leading retailers. Compatible smart devices required. Support also comes from National Geographic's Paris to Pittsburgh, a timely documentary from Bloomberg Philanthropies in partnership with Radical Media that examines the ways Americans are responding to Washington's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. Paris to Pittsburgh, narrated by Emmy winner Rachel Brosnahan, premieres Wednesday, December 12th at 9 p.m. on National Geographic. Hey there, we're going to get back to the show in a second, but I wanted to give you another reminder that if you like what you hear, you can support this podcast by supporting your local public radio station. Just go to donate.npr.org politics to support fact-based journalism. Okay, back to the show. And we're back, and no global warming has not been solved. And yes, it's still probably going to get worse, but you know what? In the meantime, we will still carve out some space to talk about the things we can't let go, just like we do at the end of every show. And for Scott Horsley, that's climate change. That's true. You're already <laughs> on. Aisha, uh, what do you want to start with? So what what I can't let go of this week, uh, you know, I've talked about this artist before. Now, I like dollars, I like diamonds, I like stunning, I like shining, I like million dollar deals. My Cardi B, her husband Offset of the Migos, they broke up. Oh, they're, they're no longer together. She made this announcement on Instagram, and she said, As it's nobody's does. fault. I guess we just grew out of love. But there are all these rumors that basically that Offset's been cheating and been just, like, really dirty dogging around town. I'm still personally, I'm just, I'm still upset about Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson. I really can't, I can't cope with this. <laughs> You know, life, it's like we talk about with politics, though. I mean, life in the spotlight, I mean, can really be glaring. It's not easy. Domenico's recalling his time as a, as a hip-hop artist. and <laughs> Back in the day, 92 in Queens. Oh, yeah. Old school. You know where I was, listening to Hot 97. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad we got Hot 97 into the podcast, and I just want to keep it. And Funkmaster Flex is still flexing. Yeah. He is good. I mean, how old is that guy? He's, he's dropping bombs. He's still dropping bombs. Amazing. Domenico? <laughs> <laughs> we could keep talking about Hot 97, but I think uh, so. I mine's, think it's your turn. mine's not as much of a right turn as you might think it'll be. Um, it's also music related, and in fact, you know, I, I have this thing where I, th- I think about you know SNL musical acts, and usually they're kind of terrible. You know, I don't know what it is. Like if it's, it's I and think it's the not, acoustics in the studio right. are bad. It's really small. I will just tell you that it's a it's a really small and long. Um, studio, the acoustics aren't great. You you take really good artists. I'm not saying the artists are bad. They go in there and they just don't sound like they sound. Some of that is studio related, but a lot of them are really good and they just don't perform as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Saturday night, you know, I tuned in. I was like, okay, what's this going to be? And I hadn't heard who the artist was going to be. Ladies and gentlemen, Anderson Pack. <laughs> And I wasn't really familiar with Anderson Pack, 
And then he performed, and it was like lights out. It was so good. I've been feeling kind of cooped up, cooped up. I'm trying to get some fresh air. Hey, why you got the roof off, roof off? Get you whenever rain's And Kendrick Lamar even came out and was uh, rapping next to him while he's playing the drums. So I send uh, Stephen Thompson of our Tiny Desk uh, uh, team here, and I said, you know, this guy Anderson Pack is really good. Like thinking like I'm discovering something, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, you guys might want to like, you know, think about. It. it seems like he'd be perfect. And he writes me back and says, you're a little late. It's the most watched Tiny Desk of all time was Anderson Pack. And from what year? <laughs> well, so this is the thing. It was. <laughs> It was August of 2016, okay, so right in the far, right in the two years behind. Just, yeah, yeah, but also right in the middle of the 2016 campaign. So you, got, you have a my excuse. apologies. The More than Adele, awesome. I thought Adele was like the reigning champion. 26 million views on YouTube. Wow. For Anderson wow. Pack. You know what just got posted on uh, NPR Music this week? The Wu Tang Tiny Dance Class concert. Speaking of 90s. Yes. I was there. It was really fun to yell Wu Tang as loud as I could within the setting of <laughs> National Public Radio. In NPR, yeah. Because. <laughs> and you keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So having just talked about having just talked about hip hop for a few minutes, we're gonna pivot hard to George Herbert Walker Bush. It is still <laughs> the NPR Politics Podcast, and uh, this week we say uh, goodbye to uh, the 41st President of the United States. And there's been all kinds of tributes to George H. W. Bush, most of them affectionate and and warm, just as you would expect. Uh, but his relationship with the press was sometimes a little prickly, and we get just a little flavor of this. Our colleague Buster Gonzalez, who covered Bush's 1988 presidential campaign, shared this little snippet of tape from the last day of the campaign as as Bush and the press corps were getting set to go their separate ways. And, and mostly he was saying thank you to the, to the reporters who'd covered him along the, the campaign. He said, look, I know you guys spend a lot of time getting up early in the morning, getting your bags out for the 6 a.m. call, hustling to jump on the bus. I've seen you rushing with the cameras and the mics when I unexpectedly walk one way instead of another. And I've seen all this and looked at you and thought, tough. Too bad, who cares? It's your problem. Get a raise. Get a real job. Get a haircut. Thank you, and uh, R.I.P. Yeah. I assume he was teasing. I yeah, think, yeah. I, absolutely, absolutely. But, but that's that not great. to say every president has their gripes with the press. Yeah. I mean, there's unquestionably, there were moments in George H.W. Bush's campaign that just drove him nuts with the press. And the fact is, he's somebody who didn't like artifice, mostly because he wasn't good at it, right? But there's that famous moment at the debate where he looks at his watch, and he told Jim Lehrer in a 1999 interview that, you know, I looked at my watch because I was thinking, you know, maybe there's 10 minutes maybe 10 minutes left in this thing and I don't have to like take this crap anymore (laughs) he literally (laughs) used the word crap (laughs) Uh, so again to balance out all the hip hop in the first half I'll stick with the theme of George Bush uh, but, Domenico, uh, I think one of my favorite stories of the 2016 campaign was something that you and I both did together looking at at how Donald Trump had been endorsed by, like, basically all the prominent jerks of sports. <laughs> and um, They say, like, people with chips on their shoulder. We said it a little more euphemistically, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, George Bush is also somebody who surrounded himself with a lot of athletes. Uh, his funeral today in Houston, it's the final funeral of all, of, of all these uh, ceremonies. A ton of athletes, like... 15 Houston Astros, it seems, Yao Ming, like all these prominent uh, athletes. And the thing is that of all the presidents, uh, maybe like Teddy Roosevelt's in the conversation, but George Bush, when he was younger, could probably make an argument for being one of the best athletes who became president. I'd say, I think widely thought Gerald Ford is maybe the best. That's true. 
But just um, like Gerald Ford, not elected uh, though. George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> George Bush played college sports. He was the captain of the Yale baseball team. There's this really cool Mm. photograph of a young George Bush uh, standing next to Babe Ruth before a game. So I had known this, but uh, so I went to Fordham for for undergraduate. And um, one of the uh, most prominent alumni of Fordham is, uh, and I especially like it because he worked at the college radio station just like me, is Vin Scully, the longtime voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers going back to when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, (laughs) this iconic American figure. Somebody found a box score from a college baseball game, Yale against Fordham, where George Bush was playing first base and Vin Scully was playing center field. Wow. And to me, it's just so cool that there's these two young guys at the beginning of their lives who would become these like monumental figures in American po- politics and sports playing against each other. Um, that's amazing stuff. Absolutely. I think Yale beat Fordham. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else to say on that front. But you know what? It has been a busy week on the podcast. It will continue being a busy week because we will be back in your feeds tomorrow because we expect major news in the Russia investigation. So once all the news comes out and we can make sense of it, we will head to the studio and break it down for you. Until then, I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast.